All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 9. And we are looking at the conversion and the commission or call of Paul. This is a very pivotal point in our time in Acts. We've been in Acts for, how long have we been in Acts? Since the fall. We've been going through Acts and we've seen some major highlights in Acts. We've seen two interpretive lenses that you have to have when you read Acts. You get to chapter 1 and it gives you the interpretive lens of an ascended one sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. We get that historical display of Jesus ascending into heaven and becoming the king. Receiving the kingdom. And that is a major lens that you must look through when you see the rest of the book of Acts. It helps you read Acts rightly. Then at the other end of verse of chapter 1, we get the apostolic witness or the apostolic ministry. Another lens that we have to look through to read this Bible rightly, to apply it rightly. So we've done that. We've traveled through now and we've seen how there have been new frontiers of the gospel going out from that major promise in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, to Samaria, to the Gentiles. Well, the calling and the conversion of Paul is a major turn in this whole book. Luke is setting us up for who Paul is and what Paul will be used to do to the remotest parts of the earth. And what ends up happening to Paul here is of such a a paradigmatic experience that he can't get over it. And he actually systematizes this experience as the normal experience of how you come to know Jesus. The light of the glory of God shines in the face of Christ into our hearts. And we believe Him. And we see Him who we've never seen before. Maybe distantly we've heard an echo of what He's like. But when He shows up, In your heart, in the glories of the gospel, it's like light shining brighter than a noonday sun. And that's what's taking place here. So we're now looking at, and we're going to look at, there are three kind of applications arising here. There's the enemy Saul we saw last week. There's the brother Saul we're going to look at today, and the suffering Saul. There's some overlap with respect to the the glories and grace of Christ here, but the application is very unique for each of those. So now let's move into Brother Saul. Here's how we're going to do it. Spurgeon is considered by many in the long history of the church to be the greatest preacher in the history of the church. That's an incredible statement to make. There have been tremendous preachers in the history of the church, and many consider him the prince of preachers. And you know what he said? He said there's one person other than my family, that had the greatest impact on me. Now, when you think of Spurgeon's life and you realize this man read five major theological works a week. You know, take Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. That's just one. He did that maybe on Monday night. It's unfair. It's really unfair. I, I hate reading about these guys that do that kind of stuff. I just think, why God? Just give me a drop of what he had. Right, Five major works a week. He founded and chaired endless ministries. All of this, he wrote all of this on top of his normal pastoring and preaching and leading and administrative work that he did. 
phenomenal, phenomenal usefulness. So when he says there's one person outside of his dad and his granddad that shaped him more than anybody else, I want to know who that is. Who is this person? Who is this person that had such a direct impact on one of the greatest preachers probably that ever lived? You know who it was? Her name is Mary King. She was an elderly cook in the school that he was being theologically trained in. And he would sit for hours after dinner while everybody went away to their studies and they would talk over theology. Can you imagine? And he said... She was so rich in theological treasures. He says, there are some Christian people who taste and see and enjoy religion in their souls and who get a deeper knowledge of it than books can ever give to them. I do believe I learned more from her than I should have learned from any six doctors of divinity. Now, what's the secret to Mary King? What's the secret to her impact on Spurgeon? In Spurgeon's own words, this is what it was. She delighted deeply in God's grace. God's grace had sunk so deep into her soul, it enlivened everything she did. All the discourses of theology, all the discourses of the scripture, everything about her was animated by a deep delight in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, your doctrine, your Bible study, your truth comes alive in the grace of God. If you read your Bible and study your Bible and go at your Bible and apply your Bible and, and do not come in contact with a deep joy and delight in the grace of God, the Bible is dead to us. Lost souls who are enslaved and are dislodged because of various sins and corruptions and the waywardness of our souls, they come alive in God's grace. When you look at marriages that are stuck in biting and devouring each other, they come alive in God's grace. When you look at parenting, you know, parenting that's addicted to that picky perfectionism. You're walking around, don't dare, you just say no all day. That's when you know something's not right. If you're a parent and you know that you're saying no all day, something's not right. If we're into picky perfectionism, your parenting comes alive in the grace of God. Retirement. There are a few of us here. Tired? Retirement that seeks a shallow security and earthly comfort and ease comes alive in God's grace. Hearts that are hurt and controlled by the rejection of others, they come alive in God's grace. Depressed souls come alive in God's grace. Christian education, fellowship, youth ministry, worship services, evangelism and missions, which we'll hear tonight, all come alive in God's grace. Everything comes alive in God's grace. Everything about you this morning. Every area of your life this morning. Now, this passage is about coming alive to God's grace. It's about coming alive with God's grace. So here's one thing we need to remember, though. If we're thinking and sitting here, boy, I'm so glad Josh is here this morning. Because he really needs to come alive in God's grace because he's got such a sticky, stuffy personality. 
you move to the front of the line and needing to come alive in God's grace. So all of us this morning need to come alive in God's grace. That's why this passage is here. How do you like, how do you like hearing that God actually puts a passage for you in the Bible so you come alive? That he wrote it, he recorded it, it happened for the hearers 2,000 years later so that you come alive to God's grace. Does that make you want to hear it? Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's pick up in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And there for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. You know, I just realized that if Saul wasn't converted, Ananias is done. Saul's coming to get him. Now that that might add a point to the sermon today. Now, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has a vision. He has seen a vision, a man named Ananias, come in, lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name's sake. Let's look at verse 17 together. So Ananias departed and entered the... You guys can say it with me if you'd like. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll read. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the Prince of Glory, and we acknowledge that you are the Lord of Glory. In the same way that you have sent and unleashed heaven by sending your Spirit, we do know that there are needful, daily, moment-by-moment, continual fillings of your Spirit that was sent out and is with your church and with your people. So even now, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your Spirit. 
enable us to understand, enable us to think rightly, enable us to follow the logic here. And even more than that, Lord, enable us to taste and see the deep riches of your glory and your grace. That we would be like that impactful Mary King, that we would delight deeply in the grace of God. And we know, Lord, that's something only you can do, and that's something that you delight to do. And so we look to you to do that even now, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Saul could not reach God, but we know that was not because of lack of effort. We know he was putting all kinds of effort in trying to reach God. And last week we appeared, we asked, we kind of took the form of a cactus. And we sat on the side of the road and we watched what happened to Saul as he's traveling on his way to Damascus to take out the saints that are there. And we saw that uh, grace had suddenly flashed upon him. Remember that word suddenly? It's, it's very intrusive. It's very in-breaking. It's a, it's a God-coming-down kind of thing. It's a God-breaking-in kind of thing. It's suddenly. It's, it's the kind of thing he, Saul's having a conversation with one of the men he's with. And suddenly it happens. He could have been watching a rabbit flit across the road. Suddenly it happens. And the way it happens for us is suddenly it happens in conversations at a coffee shop. Suddenly it happens in the middle of a a depression and discouragement over a relationship or a marriage. Suddenly, suddenly it happens when you least expect it. God breaks in. Now, how did he break in? We saw that it was suddenly a light from heaven. Now, remember, the other account later, and I think it's 19 and 22, it's in the middle of the afternoon. It's 12 o'clock. So there is a light that shines, that outshines the sun and literally knocks him off his horse. And we've seen that light is attributed to God alone. Light was before the sun and the stars and other celestial beings were created, which is what we think light comes from. You know, we thought God created light and we had those celestial beings. But, it, but those, those happened on day four. Day one, light came into being. And it's this light of glory. It's like heaven just cracked open and glory escaped. And in the midst of that, that light flashed, but it flashed around Paul. It was personal. It was specific. It was targeted after him. And then a voice spoke, the voice that spoke the world to be. The voice when it was on earth said, Lazarus, come out, who's dead in his tomb. The voice says, Saul, Saul. And he changes on the spot. The sheer sudden superiority of grace flashed into him, and he changed. He now became the 13th apostle. He now became the apostle to the Gentiles. He now became the one who will write three quarters of the New Testament. He now becomes what many think, and I think myself, that he's the second greatest person to ever walk this earth. The first being the Lord Jesus. It's incredible what happens to him. The point of this passage is very, very simple. And yet it's deeply life-changing. Human effort cannot reach God. But Jesus can certainly reach you. Human effort can't reach God, but Jesus 
most certainly can reach you. Now there are enemy Saul, brother Saul, suffering Saul that take this point and start banging into these different personas of Saul to help us, to help us see how Jesus certainly reaches us. Because Jesus certainly reaches an enemy. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? He is an enemy. And then he reaches one who turns into a brother. That's what we're going to look at today. And then next week we're going to look at that last little line. Did you get it? Did you get it? He said, he will know how much he will suffer for me. I mean, in my call to ministry, I don't think I've ever heard anyone preach that verse. I'm going to show him how much he's called to suffer. So we'll look at that next week. All right. So let's get started with Brother Saul. Let's kind of walk ourselves, drop ourselves in the middle of the text. Again, this is happening in a real-life historical story. This is real stuff. It's happening with a man. Now we're shifting to away from Paul to a man named Ananias. Now, Ananias, when, when Jesus appears to him in a vision, he can't believe what he's hearing. Did you notice that Ananias even knew and had the data? In other words, Saul is on his way to Damascus. Ananias is in Damascus, and he even learns what Saul's coming to do. So word spread quickly. Somehow it got out. I mean, he's on the hunt. He's ready to take folks out, men, women, children, drag them back to Jerusalem. So he can't hear, he can't believe what he's hearing when Jesus says, go find Saul. Lay your hands on him, and I'm going to heal his eyes. Can you imagine? Ananias is thinking, why? Keep him gouged out. I mean, he's gouged out plenty other dear loved ones' eyes. Literally. Rocks. He split them open. He did it to Stephen for crying out loud. I'm glad his eyes are blinded. That's what I'd be doing. Now, I think that's kind of the undercurrent here, because, but he's... he's He's still, he's talking to the Lord. You don't say that stuff to the Lord. You think it, but you don't say it. Because in verse 13, he says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. (laughs) Ananias is dumbfounded. Saul is an enemy. Now, for the most of us, Ananias is deeply distressed here. We don't like it. For most of us, it offends our spiritual piety. It offends us spiritually because we, we don't relate to it. We don't understand it. And I think we don't because I think we're used to living in the soft west. We're used to living with bumper stickers that say, make love, not war. We're used to saying and listening and believing that arms are for hugging. Think peace, world peace. And so when you grow up in a society in which tolerance is the highest virtue, nonviolence is the highest virtue, peace at all costs is the highest virtue, this, this we can't relate to. We say stuff like, come on, Ananias, lighten up. He's on our team now. Come on, nobody's perfect. You're not perfect. We move into moral equivalency. 
We say, come on, Ananias, can't you just shake it off? You know, you're letting your Rambo side show a little bit too much here. We say, come on, Ananias, you're not being very forgiving. You're not turning the other cheek. God is not vengeful. God is not judgmental. God is not violent, Ananias. And then periodically someone like any pronounce his name, Mirosov Wolf. He challenges these soft Western ideas we have. Sometimes it takes someone like that. It takes someone out of our culture to shock us sometimes. Now this guy, he shocks our Western ideas of tolerance at all costs, peace at all costs, and nonviolence. I know some of you are thinking, is this guy a preacher? What's he talking about up there? Now Wolf is an influential Croatian Christian theologian. He's from Croatia. Do you remember what happened between 1991 and 1995? The Serbian-Croatian War. He wrote, My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and then leveled to the ground. Whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them Should we not retaliate? Why not? Why not? The only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, he says, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. In other words, he's saying that violence is thriving because of the belief that God doesn't take the sword. He's saying that the reason the theology we have of nonviolence comes from a nonviolent, nonjudgmental, peace at all costs, tolerant God. He says it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of this thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. It takes suburbs to come up with theology like this, is what he's saying. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of justice, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Ananias is right to feel the way he feels. Saul's done evil. Saul's a scary person. Saul deserves to have his eyes gouged out. He deserves it. He deserves more. Notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke Ananias. Doesn't rebuke him at all. Notice that Jesus does not preach a peace-at-all-cost sermon to Ananias. Notice what Jesus does. It's in verse 15. Notice what he does. He highlights his name. And when he highlights his name, what happens to Ananias? Ananias departs at once to go meet with Saul. Okay, so something's happening with this name. Let's look at it. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he has chosen, he's an chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, before kings and children of Israel. Now, it's in this name that I want us to see everything hangs as a subpoint of the main point that we're looking at. Human effort cannot reach God, but Jesus can certainly reach you. Specifically, he's reaching brother Saul. Ananias calls him a brother. How does Ananias move to calling him a brother? That's the point. And it's found in 
Jesus' response by saying, he will carry my name. Now, when Jesus says, Saul will carry my name, what he literally means is that Saul will carry my cross and my crown to the nations, Ananias. I want to prove this to you real quick. Look at verse 20. This is after our passage. And immediately he proclaimed, this is now once Saul does go do this. Notice, he was with the disciples of Damascus, and then immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. That's highlighting the crown. That's highlighting the Son of God is the one who brings the kingdom. The Son of God is the one who sits at the right hand of throne. Remember, chapter 1, the enthroned one, the Prince of Glory, the one who has the kingdom of God, the one seated and unleashes heaven and unleashes his kingdom. Son of God, crown. Now, let's keep going. Let's go over to verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the what? The Christ. Now, this is a different aspect. This is highlighting the cross. The Christ is the Messiah. The Christ is the Savior King. The Christ is one who suffers to bring the kingdom in. The crown comes via the cross. Do you see what's happening here? So here's what's happening. He will carry my name. And I want to put a picture and an image seared into your mind and into your heart that this captures you, that this image sinks into your soul, that this image you taste and see. And when you do, the delight of grace begins to warm you and drive you and shape you and mold you and make you alive. And the image is going to be found in Saul carrying the cross to the Gentiles. Now, here's the image I want you to get. What's fascinating about this passage, and I'm going to get to it, this image. So hold on. What's fascinating about this passage is the link between Moses and Saul that's being done here. How many times does God speak to Moses when he calls him? Moses, Moses. Saul, Saul. Notice the other parallel. When Moses is in the midst of being commissioned and called by God to the prophetic office, because this is the parallel, that's the point of the language here. It's just one of those, you know, there's main points, and there's things that kind of flow three, four subterranean levels down in the text. And once you get used to reading the Bible as a whole, as one story, those things that are three, four levels down in the subterranean level, they come gushing up like geysers, and they help you see the beauty of the text. So first we see there's a prophetic link here between Moses and Saul. The way they're called, their names are mentioned twice. When Moses is called and he finally is being sent out, what does Moses say? Well, I'm going to go down there and they're going to ask me who you are. And wow, what am I going to say to him? And what does God say? Tell them, I am sent you. Saul, he's on the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And what is, what's the response? I am Jesus. Now, there's other language that goes on with Ananias to Jesus and Ananias to Saul that has links back to Moses as well. But all of this is for the purpose of showing this is a prophetic 
commission of the likes of Moses that Saul's being given. It's his conversion, but it's a commission as well. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is here's the image I want you to get. Moses, I'm using, I'm stealing an image from the Old Testament. Moses carried a staff around, didn't he? And what did that staff do? That staff became symbolic of God's power. Before Pharaoh, before the Red Sea, and then throughout Israel's history. The staff became symbolic. He would carry the staff. And when he raised the staff up at the sea, God says, raise the staff. He raised the staff up. What happened? The sea parted. The image I want you to get here is that Saul is to carry the cross to part the sea of sin that separates sinners from God. He will carry the cross and the sea of sin will part. And there will be dry ground and there will be open access to God. But we're also going to see to one another. Now, those of you that are sitting here, I don't, I don't like pictures. You know, I, I like crunching numbers. I'm, I'm more home doing math. I'm more home with a proposition. Well, here's your proposition. The violence of the cross makes peace. Saul is not escaping divine justice here. It's not peace at all costs. It's not tolerance is the highest virtue. It's not a theology of nonviolence. It's just the opposite. It is violence like you've never seen. It's violence like you've never heard. It's violence that we only get the echo of. It's violence that is so deep and so foundational and so unleashing. It's called hell. And Saul's sin, Saul's evil, is judged at the cross. In other words, on the cross, divine justice is satisfied. What happens on the cross is that Jesus takes the place of Saul, and all the righteousness of God, all the holiness of God, all the infinite worth of God, all the incredible depths of his riches and his moral character, everything that's summed up in holy, 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 all of that is unleashed on Jesus. On Jesus, his eyes are gouged out. On Jesus, it's scorched. On Jesus, is violence like we have never seen before that the almighty, omnipotent wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. And it's poured out on Saul in Jesus. So much so that the violence of God is unleashed on the cross in such a way that it eventually runs out. It eventually empties. It exhausts itself. The divine violence of God and him taking up his sword and striking his own son is so complete that he drops the sword and he's done. The war's over. That's what got into Ananias' soul. 
grace that Saul is now befriended by God and forgiven by God starts working itself into Ananias' soul. And he starts knowing if he carries the cross, which demonstrates the violence of God to make peace with God, Saul's evils, I mean his badness, and the idolatry of his goodness, because remember, Saul was trusting in his goodness to be right with God. That got judged. And then Ananias had to know, I am the same. Now, if you've convinced yourself that you are beyond the borders of God's grace, the stuff that we're talking now, if you've convinced yourself, you're sitting here and you're saying, look, my badness is such an extent that I'm into enemy territory and I can never get out. I mean, Jeff, if you really knew how bad I am, you wouldn't talk to me. You wouldn't have a conversation with me. And the person I'm sitting next to would screech and leave if you knew how bad I was. And those of you that that think that way and feel that way, that your badness has pushed you beyond the borders of God's grace, I want you to listen very carefully. I want you to listen that God does not overlook your sin and your evil. Great. Thanks. You know what he does? He looks at it finally and fully at the cross. Oh, he, he unleashes it all at the cross. So much so, he completely exhausts his justice. He completely satisfies his holiness. He completely demonstrates the justice of his sword, and it's over. Finally and fully at the cross, there's not one drop of wrath that escapes the cross and lands on you. It's so exhausted that the scripture says, there's no more condemnation. Now when Paul writes no more condemnation, you know he had to believe that. He knows what he was like. I, you can imagine him penning Romans 8.1, writing it down. There is now no more condemnation. Because he knows what it's like to be condemned. So what this means is, is that it's done. It's finished. Condemnation done. Justice finished. That means right now for you that feel like you're beyond the borders of God's grace, forgiveness is now very real. A friendship with God is very real. Because the only thing that keeps you from forgiveness and friendship is divine justice. And Jesus takes the sword so that you get forgiveness and you get friendship. He parts the sea of sin. You now can walk and have access to God. Peace with Him. Let that get into your soul. Those of you that don't know Him, trust Him. Those of you that do, believe this. I mean, I think some of us that do know Him are trusting in our badness. And we trust in our badness to such an extent we don't think we can come back. And what I want you to see is, remember, it's not about human effort. It's not your badness, and it's not your goodness. 
It's the cross that parts the sea. It's the cross that takes the violence of God that makes peace. You don't. Now, there are others of us here that have nagging feelings of guilt and condemnation. It steals your joy all day. It steals your peace at night. It steals your happiness. It's just a low-grade fever of, of guilt. It's that nagging guilt, that nagging feeling, I'm dirty, I'm corrupt, and I'm guilt. I'm guilty before God. And what it ends up doing is it silently it starts working into the subterranean levels of your heart and starts pushing you to perform for God. Because you're thinking, if I can just do a little better, it'll go away. If I perform and, I, and if I'm better in this area, if I finally avoid that sin, if I finally do this particular area of obedience, then in that subterranean motivation of your heart, you'll feel better and guilt will go away. This is what I want you to hear. God's wrath, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's holiness towards you is satisfied at the cross. It's finished. It's over. It's done. And what you need to do, and they're going to kick and scream every step of the way. Are you ready? You're going to take your nagging feeling, and you're going to take your nagging guilt, and you're going to take that horrible emotion, and you're going to take that circumstance that always condemns you, and you're going to take it kicking and screaming to the cross. And watch it die. And when it dies, guess what happens to you? As it's dying, you're coming alive. As your guilt and your feelings, as they die at the cross, you come alive. Freedom seeps into you. Forgiveness seeps into you. Friendship with God seeps into you and it sinks into your soul in such an extent. You do come alive and you start saying, forgiveness is better than anything. Friendship with God, better than anything. It's my ultimate identity, my ultimate life. It's what I need to parent. It's what I need in my job. It's what I need in resolving conflict. It's what I need, hands down. And you come alive. So take those little gremlins, kicking and screaming to the cross. So the cross parts the sea of sin. The violence of the cross makes peace. And there's one final application we've got to get at. And it's the one that I want you to taste in your heart. Because it's the, it's the focus of this text. How does Ananias forgive Saul? How does he do it? But even more than that, how does Ananias become a friend of Saul? Let's review real quick. Ananias is right to feel the way he feels, isn't he? Saul has done evil. Saul is a scary person. Saul deserves to have his eyes gouged out and more. But Saul now carries the cross. Jesus has substituted himself for Saul. Justice is done. And Ananias thinks... And I carry the cross. I'm just as scary. I've done just as much evil. And that starts sinking into his soul. He carries the cross. I carry the cross. And so what does he do? He gets up, as verse 16 says, or 17. He walks down a street 
Now, if you think there are accidents in the Bible, you've got to be kidding me. Do you, well, look, look at the name of the street, Straight. I mean, the Lord is so providentially in the details. He wants you to see it by taking you to even the right street. Straight. And he walks and he finds a specific house on the street called Straight. He takes a deep breath. And he walks inside. Finds the person he's looking for. And instead of reaching for his sword... He says, Brother Saul. That's how it happens. You will never forget that person. You will never forgive the parent if you're a child. You'll never forgive your spouse. You'll never forgive your friend. You'll never forgive your worker. You'll never forgive your boss. You'll never forgive that stranger. You'll never forgive them unless you carry the cross. You have two choices. You will either carry the cross or you'll carry the sword. You'll carry the sword even if it's not literally a sword. You'll carry the sword in your beliefs. You'll carry the sword in your raging emotions. You'll carry the sword in your words. You'll carry the sword in your actions and your deeds. You will carry the sword. Now, please hear me. Personally, you're never to carry the sword. But civilization, society... Ethic. Paul says, the state doesn't carry the sword for nothing, brother. You do good, state pats you on the back. You do evil, duck. So there is a sword in the civil restraint of sin in the world. So I'll challenge some of you who have a nonviolence beyond the personal up to the state level. I'll challenge you. Okay. Now, one pastor theologian put it this way, I am violated. If I am violated, only a deep belief in a God of justice will enable me to refrain from picking up the sword and rendering my own justice. The only way nonviolence, the only way to nonviolence on the personal level is belief in a God of judgment and vengeance. Wow. I would add this, the only way to nonviolence is belief in a God of judgment and vengeance, either at the cross or at the coming judgment. That's what I would add. Okay? Now, for many of us, we don't forgive, and the bottom line is we don't forgive because, I, have to write, I had to write this down, the bottom line is something has replaced Jesus' glory and grace. In other words, something has replaced the first commandment in our heart when we don't forgive. We don't forgive for many reasons. All I want to do is get to the bottom line. We don't forgive. Bottom line reason is something has replaced in our heart the first commandment. Something has replaced in our heart the glory and grace of Jesus. It's become our comfort, our identity, our life, our meaning, our security, whatever it is. So usually in forgiveness, though, ironically, it's your suffering, your pain, and your hurt that takes that place. Because something happens like this. We think, look, I must have the respect that was denied me to be happy, to be okay. I must, I must have the dignity lost by that evil, by that sin. I must have it to live. I must have 
What else do I have down here? The good thing lost to live. When you've been sinned against and hurt against, done evil against, that whatever's been done, you've lost something. And what you end up doing is taking what you've lost and saying, I must have it to be a person. I must have it to be whole. I must have it to be okay. I must have it to have life or I'm not going to make it. And see, what happens is this. When you carry... When you carry the cross, it pushes the replacement Savior out. When you carry the cross, forgiveness with God and friendship with God becomes better than the replacing pain in your heart. That the peace of God is better than the replacement you've put there. That being hurt and being sinned against exposes. Do you see that? And also what ends up happening is peace with the person pushes it out. Do you see that how that happens? Okay. I have one more minute, so I'm going to do it anyway. Some of you are thinking, I get the Christian forgiving Christian bit. I get that. I know I'm called to forgive. But what about, what about the unrepentant wicked? What about the unrepentant evildoer that does it on a grand, great scale to you, to your loved one, to a nation? Do I forgive them? I mean, there are people who are separated from God for eternity. They're not forgiven. How do we do with this, deal with this? Here's the answer. You still carry the cross. On this side of things, we always carry the cross. You carry the cross for them. They need it. You carry the cross for yourself. You always need it. And this is what you do. You realize, one day, if this person who's unrepentant in their sin and their evil on a small scale, large scale, global scale, a Hitler-Stalin type scale, one day... If they don't carry the cross, they will carry coming judgment. It will happen. And when that happens, neither God nor you and me will forgive them. But that's on the other side. On this side, personally, we are always called to forgive because we always carry the cross. And we carry the cross to them, to Saul's, to Jeff Hatton's, to Rafer Lutz's. We carry the Saul. We carry the cross to all the Saul's out there. So you got one picture I want you to get in your mind, and that is the cross parts the sea of sin. For you that need a proposition, the violence of the cross makes peace. Human effort cannot reach God. Cannot. But Jesus can certainly reach you. And he certainly reaches you through the violence, the violence of the cross. He reaches you with overwhelming, superior, sudden, light-shining grace. Amen.